The home stretch is the best stretch, I have to tell you. I'm so, I'm so happy to have gotten uh, to, as I know all of you are happy to have gotten to day three of the Texas Tribune Festival. Welcome back. Have you enjoyed yourselves this weekend? Hasn't it been fun? Uh, I, I've had a blast, and I, I am so elated to see all of you and to have had you on this campus and people who will, uh, will still be joining us today and people who will not be joining us today. Biggest festival ever. We think we're going to get to 4,000 people across this campus. Probably a quarter of those people were students. Uh, I mean, just amazing. And, and as much as, as I and others at the Tribune you know, will talk in existential and lofty and ephemeral terms about, you know, solving the problems of the world and the mission of the Tribune. In fact, an event like this does exactly what we said seven years ago we wanted to do. We're getting people in a room. We're having serious conversations about big issues. We're talking about the things that matter, telling people to pay attention. And then when we go away, the conversation continues. And I love that. And so thank you all for being part of that whole uh, wonderful exercise. Uh, I want to welcome you to the closing day. We have two programs for you this morning, one now at 9 and then one at 10.15. I always refer to this day as politics church. Um, you could be elsewhere worshiping in one sense, but you are here worshiping in another. Whatever your faith walk, we welcome you. Um, it's a great way to spend a Sunday morning in any case. Um, and, and I say this on behalf of everybody at the Tribune. One thing I did not do Friday, but want to be sure to do now, is to acknowledge the Tribune staff who put this event on, worked so hard to do it, beginning with Agnes Varnum and Jessica Weaver and everybody at the Tribune events team who make this happen. They do a fantastic job. We don't see it, uh, uh, but all that work is going on beneath the surface. Uh, our friends at South by Southwest who know how to run an event like this do the back-end production. They make it so that this event works so well. Please give the South by Southwest folks a hand. Maybe, maybe the most gratifying thing is when people come up and they say, this thing runs so smoothly, I can't believe it. It's only been going for six years. It just all works perfectly. And of course, I say thank you, but what I really should say is don't blame us, blame South by, because it is actually the South by guys who do it. Um, this particular session you're going to hear right now is supported by AT&T. We thank them. I will acknowledge at the beginning of the next uh, uh, close, the Evan McMullen conversation, our sponsors one last time, so I won't run through the full list, but AT&T is, uh, is ge generously supporting this particular session. And of course, the University of Texas at Austin, our wonderful uh, uh, hosts, very hospitable to us this whole uh, weekend to have us back on campus for a sixth year. Please give UT Austin, everybody UT Austin, a big hand. A lot of people signed up as members of the Tribune. You know the Tribune is a public media organization. Everything we do but for this event all year long is free. Uh, and that is supported in large part by membership, folks like you. People have signed up all weekend long as members. Uh, our giveaway is still in effect until midnight tonight. If you become a member, if you renew your membership, or if you chip in a little bit over and above your existing membership, you're put into a drawing to win two nights at El Cosmico in Marfa and two nights at the Hotel St. Cecilia in Austin. So look for people with Texas Tribune membership shirts, and if you want to sign up, we'd love to have you be part of that drawing, and we appreciate your membership absolutely. Um, that's it. I'm going to now ask our panelists to join us. We'll get started. They're going to take their seats, and I will introduce them from the stage. Why don't you all come out? Oh, yeah. right, you guys are ahead of oh, me. Oh, sorry. Good. <laughs> and we're going to do this in alphabetical order. Chris, Anna, Steve, Jay, and Dave. And I will introduce them Whoa, all to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, that's what happened to me. <laughs> I, have, I have to tell you, uh, this is always my favorite panel of the whole festival every year. Um, even in a year where you got Ken Starr and you got Ted Cruz and you got whomever else, John Kasich, there is no more fun panel than to do uh, this panel. And these five especially, this is going to be absolutely great. It is my pleasure to introduce the first of our two closing keynote sessions, our now familiar, breezy conversation about the presidential race. The difference this time, of course, is that in the past, election day was eons away. The stakes <laughs> seemed lower. It was all out in the distance. It was all speculative. Now, literally, we're fewer than 50 days away, and the stakes are huge. The panel in 2014 was really the first version of this. Um, we called it Ready for 2016. That was a nod to the early stage Hillary Clinton organizing slogan of the time. That does seem like an eternity ago, as everything pre-Trump does. That panel had, among others, Jonathan Martin and Maggie Haberman. They were not yet colleagues at the New York Times. We talked about a more conventional, which is the same as saying a more boring campaign narrative. We didn't have any sense what was coming. Last year, 2015, was called Make 2016 Great Again. Yeah. We were several months past Donald Trump descending on that escalator in Trump Tower. And no matter what we all set up on stage, nobody really took him truly seriously at that point. Amy Chozik of the Times was here and she recounted, I remember this like we were just doing it yesterday. She said, many of my friends in New York are still thinking about Donald Trump as a summer fling and I have to tell them it's the fall. Well, that really reflected, I think, the mood up on the stage. On the one hand, we didn't really think this was going anyplace, but it was getting on a little bit in the process. Uh, Amy was here, Ryan Lizza of The New Yorker was here. It was a good group of four to talk about that race. We thought we knew how the race was shaping up. Little did we know. This year's panel, I struggled with what to call it, and ultimately I landed on 2016 WTF. <laughs> if, if ever there was an election cycle better summed up by WTF, maybe we should have called it 2016 I Can't Even. That might have actually been better. If, but if you, think of, if you think about this, though, the challenge for all of us, for the five of us, for the media in general, and for the whole country over the next 45 days, whatever it is, is to figure out WTF happened. And WTF happens next. So here's where we are in sum, the frame for this conversation. We have the two most unpopular nominees from a major party in the history of presidential elections in this country, full stop. He may be the only one she can beat, she may be the only one he can beat. And the eventual winner will actually be a non-loser, will be the person who didn't lose. And that person will have to work really hard to claim a mandate on January 20th and to try to get enough of the country behind him or her. And that assumes even that people think the outcome is legitimate. We spent the last months undermining the credibility of the election process. So even before we get a winner, we're already questioning whether that's going to work. If, if he wins, Democrats may head en masse for Vancouver and Montreal, right? If she wins, Republicans may come down with a serious case of Obama nostalgia. <laughs> and here in Texas, this is particularly acute in Texas. The conservatives elected statewide, if they didn't like Obama, 
and they didn't, imagine what happens when Hillary Clinton's in the White House. They're all going to be standing around in January going, what happened to that nice man from Kenya? <laughs> so the five great folks up here are here to help us make sense of all of this, the implications of the race. And so let's, I'm going to introduce them quickly and then we'll get started. Chris Saleza right here, reports and writes and enthusiastically holds forth on politics at the Washington Post his employer for more than a decade, where he created the widely read and widely imitated blog, The Fix. You surely recognize him as the most ubiquitous MSNBC political analyst. Sometimes they go a whole 10 minutes without having him on the air. He previously spent four years at Roll Call, the newspaper of Capitol Hill. Before that, covered governor's races and house races at the Cook Political Report. He's a native of Connecticut and a graduate of Georgetown University. Shy retiring Anna Marie Cox, next to Chris, <laughs> is the senior political correspondent for MTV News and conducts the weekly back page interview for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. She is one of the best interviewers, I think, in the country. A veteran political columnist and cultural critic, she is the creator of the political blog, Wanquette. She previously was Washington editor of Time, Washington correspondent for GQ, national correspondent for Air America, and the lead political blogger for The Guardian. She's also the author of a political novel, Dog Days. Born in Puerto Rico, but raised in Texas, where her family has deep roots. She is a graduate of the University of Chicago. Steve Kornacki is an MSNBC host and political correspondent, the anchor of the 4 p.m. hour of MSNBC Live, a regular guest host of Rachel Maddow's and Chris Matthews' programs, and an analyst who provides real-time data and demographic information on primary and election nights. He previously co-hosted the afternoon millennial kibitz fest, The Cycle. And he was the host of the Saturday and Sunday morning <laughs> show, Up. In his pre-TV days, he was the politics editor of Salon.com and wrote for the New York Observer. He is a native of Massachusetts and has a degree from Boston University. Jane Newton Small, Washington correspondent for Time Magazine, where she's covered the White House, Congress, and two presidential elections, and has also been on assignment in nearly every corner of the globe. Previously, she covered the White House and Congress for Bloomberg News. She's the author of Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, published earlier this year. The child of UN diplomats, she was born in New York but grew up all over the world. She's an alumna of Tufts University and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Finally, I will not do this panel without him, our returning champion, Dave White, <laughs> who has been in that very seat on this very panel for three consecutive years. He's a national political correspondent for the Washington Post, a fierce cable TV talker in his own right, and a forceful presence on social media. He previously helped launch the Bloomberg Politics site as a roving reporter and spent four years as a reporter and podcast host for Slate. He's also written about the American conservative movement for reason, and one of these days, he'll finish his book about progressive rock. I, I did finish it. <laughs> Is it done? It's done? Next year. When's it coming out? Next June. Year. June. All right. All right. Yeah. A Delaware native, he's a graduate of Northwestern University. Go Cats. Please join me in welcoming <laughs> Chris Eliza, Anna Marie Cox, Steve Kornacki, Jay Newton Small, and Dave White. So <clears throat> let me start with Weigel and Saliza, only because their newspaper, The Washington Post, along with ABC News, has a poll out. We do. This very morning, that shows Hillary Clinton up two points on Donald Trump, 49-47, among likely voters in a two-way heat, 
and up 2.4644 against likely voters in a four-way heat. So it's a two-point race within the margin of error. The race is tied. Last week, Hillary Clinton said, I don't know why I'm not winning by 50 points. <laughs> and of course, I'm thinking of that old Saturday Night Live skit with John Lovitz as Michael Dukakis and Dana Carvey as George H.W. Bush, where Dukakis looks at the camera and he says, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. <laughs> what, why is she not winning? Why is this race tied? Everything that we thought up to this point and after the convention would have suggested this would not be where we are. What's going on? Um, I, I think she is winning. Um, I think national polling, uh, this race is more nationalized than most, so I think you can pay a little bit more attention to national polling than usual, but the yeah. truth of the matter is that while we have a national election, everybody votes on the same day. It's not really a national election. Not really. Uh, I'm from Connecticut. The last time my parents saw a candidate in the general election, other than stopping in for a fundraiser, was never. I mean, you know, like it's just, this is not a thing. Like, I didn't grow up like, oh, look, there's a TV ad on. You know, Mike, we live in Virginia, there's TV ads on all the time. Yeah. It's just not. So, um, but I, I say she's winning because I think that she had, I shouldn't say she's winning. She has a lot more paths to win than he does. That is just a fact. He has essentially three to four paths to get to 270 electoral votes. Right. Uh, she has, depending on however many iterations you want to make of the map, yeah. 15 or 20. Um, she has demographic uh, advantages as well. Look, Mitt Romney got one in every 10 people who voted for Mitt Romney wasn't white. That was seen as a, like a low water mark. Re Republican, we can't do this badly again among non-white <laughs> yeah. voters. It seems unlike, I mean, if you go and read, just for <laughs> kicks, if you go and read some of the Republican op autopsy, the Growth and Opportunity Project, right in the beginning is we have to find a way to get beyond uh, immigration stuff with Hispanic voters. We have to be for comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, obviously, the candidate who they have chosen is not uh, of that uh, ilk. So it's just very hard shrinking. I mean, Texas is more indicative of this than any state. Shrinking white population, booming yep. Hispanic population, you know, the white vote will drop to 70 or below this election as a uh, part of the overall electorate. So she has a lot of built-in advantages that will be difficult for him right. put aside the national polling to overcome. Uh, Dave, this is Austin, Texas, home of Democratic bedwetters at times like this. <laughs> right. Uh, you throw a rock, you'll hit somebody who is running up to journalists and saying quietly, please tell me this is not going to go badly. <laughs> Can you reassure the bedwetters among us? Put away the rubber sheets, this is going to be fine? Well, I've been telling everyone who asked me that, oh, wait till the first debate. So this, this panel is perfectly timed for right. me to not say anything. So consequence-free speculation. We but don't the, actually know what's going to happen. The reason I think it, it is competitive is because a bet was made by Donald Trump, consciously or unconsciously, to act on something that the, I guess, the minority report of that autopsy report was saying in 2013, which was, uh, you can say the white vote is declining to maybe 72%. In any other circumstance, you'd say 72% a lot of people. And if you get a bigger majority of that vote, then right. you win the election. And there, is, there was, again, in, in the way he talked, I don't think you'll ever find like a Trump memo where he said, I'm going to do this the way that Pat Buchanan argued to Nixon that we could split the country in half and have a bigger half. Uh, he figured out that there are a lot of white voters who kind of habitually vote for Democrats and don't like the Democratic Party, which has shifted to the left. That's one the narrative I think that's lost in a kind of a lot of the glibber, oh, Hillary is, 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 stands for nothing coverage. She right. represents a very left-wing Democratic Party that's moved 
left on abortion, left on gay rights, left on immigration. Yeah. Uh, and, and Sanders in the primary pushing her to the left yeah. probably accentuated On that, student right? loans, it's yeah. now the party. where it's Something that they would have rejected 40 years ago because it was, it was scary to, to voters. It's the party of, uh, oh, there are, there are uh, protests in the streets. We side with the protesters. Uh, there are college students um, uh, making a fuss on campus. We want their tuition to be cheaper. I mean, it is, it is a more... Uh, elite party in a lot of ways and a more representative right. of the non-white part of the country and Trump's saying, oh, I'll get the rest of those guys then. And I, yeah. I think his, his, the reason he's competitive is because he's doing better with a lot of those white voters, including, he's, that's one reason he's doing worse in Texas, but if we were having this conversation in Maine, he's doing better than any he's Republican doing better since in the Maine. 80s because right. lots of, if you've been to Maine, it's, it's yeah. very lovely, uh, especially right now compared to what the soup I walked through for three days here. But yeah. it's... Yeah. Very white, and it turns out a lot of white people who didn't go to college and are and see see that TV and see people protesting cops are like, nope, and then, and they like yeah. they like Trump. Yeah. Uh, Ani, you know the fundamentals of any race like this are assumed at the beginning. We don't always see the end as as what we thought was going to happen at the beginning. Leaving aside the fact that traditionally, when a party's in power for two terms, the next term is not won by that party. A lot of what Chris alluded to, what Dave is saying, the fundamentals were on her side going into this, right? Yeah. So if this was her race to lose, why is she doing such a good job of it? <laughs> um, I think that, <laughs> you know, I think we all underestimated the appeal of white supremacy. Um, honestly, I mean... That's, is that, is, you, you, th you think that's it? I think Trump's appeal is based in white supremacy. I think it's. I think immigration is, in a way, a smokescreen for just talking shit about brown people. Um, I think that uh, Democrats underestimated their ability to hold on to uh, traditionally Democratic white voters. Um, I don't think um, you know. There's sort of like this weird debate, especially on social media, about is it the economics or is it the racism? Um, it can be both. Um, I think Trump's appeal is based in a crisis of white privilege. Um, there are people not necessarily poor, not necessarily struggling, um, but there are white people, especially white men across the country, that feel anxious about a country that has seen gay marriage become law, that elected a black man, that may elect a woman. Um, and they may not be personally struggling in an economic sense, but they sense the decline of their social capital. Are these new voters? These are people who have not voted before? I think before? There are, some of them are people who thought that they were, you know, politics wasn't something that they were interested in. They right. felt alienated. This is true. They felt alienated by the elitism of politics. They felt alienated by um, sort of the inside baseball of it. Yeah. Um, the fact that they've turned to someone who is both an outsider and yet the master of playing the game of, you know, quid pro quo is a weird thing. Like, no, we're never going to be able to make sense of Donald Trump, I think, even after it's all over. Um, it, unless it's, I, I do think this, this white supremacy is a sort of the key that unlocks everything because it's the only way to understand how he can like flip-flop on everything, how he can be both an insider and an outsider and an elitist and the everyman. Yeah. The, the one constant in his campaign is to demonize or um, you know, criminalize or talk down to uh, people who aren't white. Um, and I think that the, the Democrats have work to do um, in... Oh, it feels weird to do say out white outreach, but um, <laughs> I think that the Democrats have work to do in listening to those people. So you don't actually you don't actually dismiss or disrespect the fact that those people have a grievance. I think that the grieve I think that the anxiety is real, even if the decline in their social capital is somewhat an illusion. I mean, I think you know 
we're still a, there's still a lot of white people who are running things, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think I, I do think that the sense of anxiety is yeah, real. Is and also, I mean, there was a, you know, Therese's panel yesterday. I thought was really great when. Um, you know, it was supposed to be at the state of black America, and he said, well, what about white America? They seem to be the ones with the problem. Um, and it was pointed out by the mayor of Atlanta, um, Kasim Reed. Kasim Reed, that one issue is that uh, a lot of white Americans, especially middle class and below, are facing the same social problems that black Americans have been dealing with for decades. Um, declining health outcomes. Yeah. Um, trouble getting into college, addiction as an amazing specter for them. Um, you know, the opiate, uh, opioid uh, epidemic has hit white populations. Yep. Um, and so I think yep. that those people are feeling something, and right. I do think that there is going to be a need to figure out how to listen to those people without empowering them. Uh, let me just go to Steve quickly. Steve, you're the map guy. Right, I always see you in front of a map. So help me understand. <laughs> help me understand them. I wish you had brought a map. In fact, well, so I, I drew a map once uh, <clears throat> on TV. I don't know if anybody ever saw this. The the board malfunctioned. I said I'll draw the outline of the United States, and I realized then never draw a picture of anything on television because. Jimmy Fallon and others will think it looks like part of the male reproductive yep. anatomy. Well, in fairness, it is that kind of election. So that's yeah, actually that's it. Um, uh, we went into this race with this. This was the theory of the case going into the race. The Democrats have won the same 18 states in Washington, D.C. Right, every election wall, since right. 1992. What was supposed to be Hillary Clinton's basket of dependables, right? Yeah. These were the states that... This was the, these were the states that had been won by Clinton, Clinton, Gore, Kerry, Bush, Bush. Or no, Clinton, Clinton, Gore, Kerry, Obama, Obama. Yep. So you would have to assume that any Republican to, to pick that lock was going to have to win a state that had been won by uh, Clinton, Clinton, Gore, Kerry, Obama, Obama. 18 states in D.C. adding up to 242 electoral votes. So we assumed that there was this starting advantage. But now all of a sudden, not so much. There, there is a starting advantage, and she's going to hold I, most of those states. But I think that the divide that's different this time, and, and Dave was talking about this, I think to, to understand where the election is going and, and why we're here, it is among those white voters, the 70 72% of the electorate, it's the college-non-college -college divide. And, and I don't just say that in terms of, I, I put this on Twitter a lot, and I think it gets misinterpreted. A lot of the feedback I get is, well, see, it's, it's, it's proof if you're more educated. It, it's not literally about education. It's about socioeconomic status. It's about culture. It's about the communities we live in. But that college-non-college -college divide uh, among white voters, it, it's real and it's stark, and we've never really seen it in modern times the way we're seeing it right now. And Donald Trump is appealing to the blue-collar side of that. Um, now, the polls are all over the place. When you, when you break these polls down, if you take a national poll and you start saying, okay, I, I, I have a national poll of 600 people. I want to only look at the white voters. Now I only want to look at the white voters who have college degrees. You get into such small groups that the numbers are kind of all over the place. I, I say that because you could look in one poll and you could say, well, Trump's not doing that great with non-college whites. You can look at another one and he's ahead by 49 points. So they're kind of all over the place, but the totality of the evidence from all the polls that are out there suggests that Donald Trump is running up the score with non-college whites in a way that we haven't seen. Um, not just running up the score, but also getting some of them to come in off the sidelines. They hadn't been participating necessarily right. before. The flip side is he is doing worse than we've ever seen a Republican nominee for president do since, since the advent of modern polling with college-educated whites. Think of suburbanites. So what does that mean to the electoral map? <clears throat> Take a state like Iowa. So nationally in 2012, 36% of the electorate nationally 
in 2012 was non-college white. That's the national average. In Iowa, it's 54%, 54% non-college white. Now, Iowa is a state that President Obama won by 10 points uh, in 2008. He was reelected in pretty comfortably uh, in 2012. It's a state, um, it's largely been a blue state in presidential elections recently. It's probably the best blue state Donald Trump has right now. I've seen polls that put him up six, he, seven, He's up points. by seven points in a yep. poll and this there, week there's, in the, Iowa, there's right? the key. Yep. It's yes. the college-non-college divide. And you can see that in a couple of states as well. You can see it in Nevada. Again, you can see it in Nevada in two ways. One, the non-college white population. Two, people who look like they're first-time voters who have previously been on the sidelines. So take a state like Nevada. Take a state like Iowa. Take slices of Ohio. This is happening in Ohio. Take this even in parts of Florida. I know Florida's a, a more diverse state. But in parts of Florida, he's running up the score. So that's where the gains Oh, Maine. And Maine, obviously, is a, is a great example, especially right. that, that second congressional district. The flip side, though, is by appealing so strongly to those sorts of voters, there's a reaction. There's an equal or opposite reaction. And you see that among white voters in the suburbs. And so a state like Virginia, that was a Republican readout for generations, that Barack Obama barely flipped in 2008, that he barely, it was about four points, held on to in 2012, and everybody says this is going to be one of the premier swing states of 2016. Now, I know Tim Kaine is running, but even without Tim Kaine, I think Virginia is probably off the map right now because Northern Virginia is so far gone for a candidate like Donald Trump. Take a state like Pennsylvania. The Republicans have been dreaming of flipping Pennsylvania, uh, you know, for the past generation or so, and Trump was thinking of those rural voters, and he's doing really well with them. But the gap he's facing in the Philadelphia suburbs is so enormous right now, right. it's not going to make up for the gains he's making. So that's, that's You mean the I cheating? Just, the cheating that will happen in Pennsylvania? Well, it's rigged. <laughs> rigged. To, to, yeah. Yeah. Steve, rigged. Jump, just, jump in and I want to give Jay. I Let think, me just say I one, think, can I say one quick thing, Jay, about his point? I wasn't looking at my yeah. phone just because I was bored. Uh, I was looking during Steve. <laughs> no, you were bored. I mean, I was, but <laughs> yeah, I was not. checking on various. <laughs> I, no, I was looking at it because this, to your point, uh, in the Washington Post ABC's poll this morning, uh, Romney won white men without a degree by 30. I was going to talk about women, yeah. yeah well, uh, he won, he's women, up 76, 17 right now in our poll among white men without right. college degree. Well, I mean, Sorry, Jay, thank you. Women is obviously the other very significant group yeah. that was assumed to be a slam dunk for, for Secretary him. Clinton. Right. And, and so the interest, I mean, so women have swung every election since Ronald Reagan, right? right. They are, we make up 53% of the electorate. In presidential elections, we actually vote on average 10% more than men do. And so you have to, to some degree, appeal to women. And really what Donald Trump is looking at here is trying to get white women, particularly, um, and, and he's, he's actually sort of losing them. I mean, I think, Chris, you had a poll at the end of May. He, had four, he was 47% amongst white women. This is a group that Romney won by nine percentage points, white women. They've always gone Republican, yeah. and the idea that Donald Trump might be losing white women, he makes it up with, like, white men. Like, so overall, <coughs> he's still in the same place where, he, where Romney was at this point in the election overall amongst whites, but it's because he's doing so poorly with white women, that's why how it balances out. And so what you see in, like, the campaign trail and, and the fight really right now to me is all about women, right? So, the, the, you know, Donald Trump going to Detroit to talk to black voters, he's not really, I mean, if he gets a couple of black voters, that's like kind of great, but he's not really trying to win the black vote. He's yeah. trying to reassure suburban white women Yep. That he is not racist because they don't like the idea of being of voting for a racist, that he's not you know, xenophobic, that he's not a white supremacist. And so he's trying to show them, like, look, black people are my friends. Black people like me. I'm okay. And like, Here, here's my African-American. <laughs> yeah, right? here, yeah. yeah, here's my African-American people. And, like, and so, um, and, and, and conversely, Hillary's sort of basket of deplorables was, was an attempt to, dr to drive a wedge between 
independent white women and Donald yeah. Trump. Because basically she's saying to those white women, do you really want to be in that same basket as all those racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, anti-gay, anti-everything people? Right. Are, are you one of those people, right? Yeah. And so, and so, the, and Kellyanne Conway is, you know, one of the best Republican strategists for women out there. I mean, she wrote a book ten years ago with Celinda Lake called "What Women Want." She's she's very savvy with the women's vote, and and she's very good at turning around Donald Trump's worst instincts yeah. when it comes to women. So Jennifer Flowers, who's supposed to go to the debate, and now it turns out bre breaking news yeah. this morning: Jennifer Flowers will not be at the debate. And that's totally Kellyanne Conway making right. the calculation that no suburban housewife wants to see, you know, yeah, like Hillary Clinton yeah. facing her husband's former mistress in the front row of the debate because that's just going to piss him off. You know, right. like so. Kelly, so Kellyanne Conway is very smart when it comes to figuring out what is going to anger and appeal to white these sort of white suburban women. And, and, and really, the fight comes down to if Donald Trump can raise his numbers with white suburban women, if he can get those independent yeah. white women on board with him and get above sort of 50, 60 percent, then he could. That, I mean, that that's the one demographic that can push him over. Everybody and, on the panel has been out to some degree observing this campaign up close. So let me ask anybody who wants to jump in on this. Is Hillary Clinton as bad a campaigner as has become an article of faith oh. in this campaign? No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so either. The, 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 I think uh, Jennifer Palmieri, one of her, her spokespeople, said something kind of plaintively that I feel like is fair, which is she will give a speech. Her typical speech is 20 to 30 minutes. It's mostly policy. It's specific policy. It's a little bit of broad themes about America, but more specific than we're used to in a presidential campaign. And then she'll put in a dig at Trump, a couple of digs at Trump. Maybe he said something that day she responds to. And if you read, especially the local coverage, it is, if she, if she talked 95% about something else, so 5% is the story. Clinton hits Trump, et cetera. Yeah. And often the video of her hitting Trump is kind of, that's the part where she gets to use like the most coded word, shrill. Right? That's the part where she well, is punching her arm and well, making a hard and point. That's, and that's fundamentally a problem yeah. with women in general. And you have to separate out Hillary Clinton's own sort of weaknesses from women in general. So women face a different test when running for executive office. You think there's a double, a double standard. This for, was on his point last night, actually, that maybe yeah. we're, not, we're not regarding everybody in the same way. I mean, this is something, when I interviewed Hillary for my book, she talked about it. I mean, she talked about this double standard for executive office versus legislative office. So it's much easier, she told me, to run for the Senate than it was to run for executive office because everything, all of the women, the natural sort of women's assets, the idea that you're very good at consensus building and win-win scenarios, actually disqualifies you from running for executive office because we perceive executive office, you have to be stronger at win-lose scenarios, zero-sum games, um, and, and decision-making with very little input from others. Yeah, yeah. And so you, women face a capability test that they do not face for any other office when yeah. they run, and that's very hard to show that you're capable before, without crossing over the line to becoming too tough and becoming a bitch, right? And yeah. so... Right. And, and so women often have, and so this is, and, and it's, so there's a lot of limitations that female candidates have in particular, and, and again, Hillary has her own set of like issues apart from this, that are very different from other, that, that from what Donald Trump would face, and I'm just gonna finish the thought, like yeah. that, um, you know, when people say she's shrill, yeah. like, you know, Bernie Sanders can yell at you for like 40 minutes, and you're like, yeah, yell at me for 40 more, you know, and like, <laughs> you know, like, Hillary Clinton gets up, and the minute she raises her voice, everyone's like, oh my God, why is mom yelling at me? Right. You know what I mean? It's like totally freaking out. Right. And so, like, and it's this, um, and that is a double standard that we, we expect powerful executive women to be pragmatists, but it's very hard for them to show passion. Right. So all female leaders in the world today, Angela Merkel, Theresa May, even Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> 
These are pragmatic women who, it's very hard for them to soar, it's very hard for them to inspire, and sh that's again another test that women yeah. face that's very different and difficult. Anna, I, have to I know jump this, in. Is, this is a good yeah. topic yeah. for you. Go ahead. <laughs> well, it's because it's not just the double standard of whether or not she sounds shrill, it's the double standard of coverage that, that uh, Dave pointed out, which, it, like, it, when someone last night said, if only Hillary had come out with some really, you know, solid policy proposals, maybe be talking about that. Oh, you can say who it was. Maureen Dowd. Um, I, I, I don't know what election she was watching. It disturbs me that someone who works for the paper of record would say such a thing because if you've been following the election beyond what's on cable news, I mean, Hillary Clinton has some of the most detailed and ambitious policies that I've ever seen. She put out an entire policy, something that caused this dear to my heart, on mental health issues that no other presidential candidate has ever put out. A, 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 a set of policy points that addresses the mental health crisis in America specifically. Yep. And you know what we covered that week? I think it was basket of deplorables. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, she wants to have that conversation. And right. she'll spend 95% of the speech having that conversation. And we, I'll, I'll, I'll take some of it, you know, just don't cover it. And instead, you know, we get the mugging and the word salad of Donald Trump. And I, I just... It is infuriating. I, I do think that um, people in the media need to examine themselves when we when we try to make this a horse race about them, you know, tossing barbs at each other. Um, when really it's a contest between someone who has policy proposals and ideas and someone who just, you know, has tasted his own foot for his entire life. I mean. <laughs> Like, well, let, let's let's he's... visit let's visit the sins of this coverage on Kornacki because Kornacki I'm going to make Kornacki own this. I mean, what, no, that's what, good. What good. Is, I, I'm leaving sure. you out of it. You're yeah. just you're just an analyst. Right. Yes, yeah. yeah, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we draw some pictures. Right. <laughs> what, what Anna is describing is everything visit, I hear in my Twitter feed I have all no day. Doubt. Every right. day. Yeah. So, Secretary Clinton gives a speech. Trump gives a speech. You all will cover the Trump speech because the Trump speech is more likely to have entertainment value than the Clinton speech. Yeah. <clears throat> well, okay, you all means cable news here, or? Uh, it can be MSNBC, I mean, right? Or I can be the sins of the whole genre. Honest to God, one of my want. biggest yeah. pet peeves in all of this has been the media. Yeah, yeah, right. that's fair. Okay, talk fair. about that, that's good. Well, uh, let, let's start with this. The, the, one of the critics, and I'll, I'll, I'm a shameless apologist for the media and all of this, so I'll, I'll start by saying that, and this right. is where I draw my paycheck, so you can say that I'm, I'm blind to it or I'm, I'm, I'm bought and paid for or whatever else I hear on, on Twitter all the time. Um, <laughs> I look at the question of media coverage a couple different ways. Um, the first thing is there's an assumption that the relationship is very one way in terms of voters and media, very broadly defined media. That is, the media says something and the voters then are indoctrinated. That, that seems to be the assumption here, and I think the, the, the relationship is very, very different. And, and here's what I mean by that. I'm thinking back to the early days of Donald Trump's campaign. Now, <clears throat> did MSNBC and did other cable news outlets play Donald Trump's uh, announcement speech, his, uh, his early speeches on the campaign trail? Well, lots of his speeches on the campaign trail. Yes, ab absolutely. Um, what was the coverage, though? Because I've gone back and looked at this. I know cable news takes a lot of heat. What was the coverage, uh, the, the volume of coverage when Donald Trump gave that announcement speech and he talked about Mexicans being raped, you know exactly what he said. Um, it was intensely, intensely critical. The reaction, now we, we played the speech, 
But the reaction on, on our network and the reaction I saw on, on just about every other network I watched, and, and this is something that's been repeated for more than a year now, was this is, this is a comment we've never heard a major credible presidential candidate make before. And the coverage at the time, when you go back and look at it, a couple things were going on. Number one, <clears throat> our, our poll, our NBC News Wall Street Journal poll, which would, had been finished two days before Donald Trump made that speech, had Donald Trump at 1% when he gave that speech. He was at 1%. The RNC had just announced its rules for the debates, 10 spots on stage, top 10 poll positions. Um, we had a segment that morning said Donald Trump right now is in danger of missing the debate stage. He may not even be in the top 10. That was the context for Donald Trump giving, uh, for making those comments. And all sorts of criticism and grief rained down on him. Uh, and I'm not saying unjustifiably um, for saying that. What I, what I went back and looked at, though, too, was I say the media, and this is what I mean. How did it play out in conservative media? How did it play out to Republican voters, conservative voters, people in red America who maybe don't watch MSNBC, maybe don't watch CNN? Maybe if they do watch CNN, if they do watch MSNBC, they sort of have the attitude my dad used to have about Ted Kennedy. If Ted Kennedy was for it, my dad was against it. <laughs> Okay. How many people in red America, if they hear it on MSNBC, they don't believe it because it's on MSNBC? If MSNBC, if the, it, it could be any cable network or any, any media outlet, but if it's yep. a media outlet that is perceived to be part of not my political tribe and they're criticizing somebody, then I like that person. And I, I say that because I went back and I looked at Rush Limbaugh. And, and, and Limbaugh, I'm using him as a stand-in here. I know conservative media is a lot more complicated than just Rush Limbaugh. I'll use him as a stand-in here because I want to keep this as brief as I can. Um, what was Rush Limbaugh's reaction in that week, in that two weeks? <clears throat> it was this. It was, so look at what the media, look at what the uh, right. uh, cable news, look at what broadcast news is doing, is doing yeah. to Donald Trump right now. They're doing to him what they do to every conservative Republican you've ever voted for, ever supported, ever right. liked. What's the difference? The difference is he's not playing their game. He's not apologizing. He's not backing down. He's throwing it right back in their face. And that is when Donald Trump moved from one to 12% in the polls, that was the next poll, and then after that from 12 to 22%. I don't think it was because mainstream media outlets were giving him coverage or were giving him fawning treatment. I think it was a reaction to right. how he was portrayed in the mainstream uh, media. I think right. can I, I just want to add one thing. Yeah. Feel free to clap for Steve. I don't want to no, get, I don't right. want to trample on Steve's applause. Right, right, yeah. Right. Um, the one thing I would say, uh, while we're airing pet peeve grievances, one of the things that I will say for, I know Dave and I, just working at the Post, one of the things that I get all the time, um, people in forums like this on Twitter, at people I run into on the street, they always say roughly the same thing. Why don't you fact check Donald Trump's falsehoods? To which I literally want to climb up to the 12th floor of the Post building and jump off because we... I send them, I'm like, give me your email. I mean, I've done this. Give me your email address. I will send you what we have done, what is difficult. And this is sort of, I thought what Steve was saying made me think exactly of it. The fact that MSNBC is critical of Donald Trump, it doesn't matter what Donald Trump thinks or who he is. Some people will like him just because of that. We would say to people, 75% of the things that Donald Trump has said uh, that we have fact-checked are false. Yep. We have fact-checked more Donald Trump statements than any other candidate by a long shot. He also talks more, more than most of the other right. candidates. Um, what that question, that the, what is inherent in the, or what I think people mean in the question of why don't you fact-check him more is not that we don't fact-check him. It's why does the fact that 75% of what he says is false not change more people's minds? Yep. That 
like how can you be for someone right right who and that's what's difficult from my perspective because it's like people have two totally uh, contradictory ideas about the media on the one hand we're powerless parasites for one side or the other typically and the other we're all powerful and should be able to to make people believe these things that we are telling them so it's just very frustrating for me because yeah. it's like we are doing and I'm not saying the media is because I know Anna is readying this so I'm going to pre-butt her I'm not saying that the media is blameless but I will say in some cases particularly as it relates to Trump I think there is a sense of, like, we have fallen down in our responsibility because there are a lot of people who are for him. And it's like, we are doing, we, again, we are doing, go and look at Glenn Kessler yeah. and Michelle Lee's blog. They have literally yeah. a gigantic thing well, of well, things and it's we fact-checked. And Anna, it's not just the fact-check. Right. I mean, this, this is the campaign, the one headline from this campaign season I'm convinced is, this is the election cycle when lies stop mattering. Right. right, and I, I guess what I would say is that the reason the fact checks don't matter is it's because you can't make people unracist. Like you can't. I just like, you think can't, that that's oversimplified. No, I mean, that all, I, I just I mean, mean, everyone who everyone no, who supports him no, is a no, racist. No, but I think that, no, 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 no. I, I, should, I, I use this. I, racist is a strong word. But I guess what I mean is I do go back to the fact that what the facts you can't the facts don't matter to them because he speaks to something more fundamental than facts. To them, he speaks to something angrier and more anxious than. So what even if you go, are. even but if you're you go conflate, to them. you're conflating. I, I, I do think it is dangerous to conflate anxiety with with racism. I don't. Okay. <laughs> um, I do. I, I think that you know you can have. Um, I mean, we, racist is such a bad word. You know, to call someone racist is so terrible. In fact, that's kept the media from calling Trump racist. When I do think. I mean, I don't know if he, in the bottom of his heart, like finds you know black and brown people hateful, but he certainly says racist things. He advocates racist policies. Um, he is an avatar for a form of white supremacy. Um, so I think that that, and I, but I think there's actually been a problem with the media. They don't want to call people racist because you can't call people racist because that's such a strong word. Can, can I just? And, but I want to I want to get to something else about this, which is that something that Steve said in the, about the coverage, which is that you said. He said something, when he said the thing about Mexicans, the coverage was, we've heard something from no other credible, he said something no other credible candidate has ever said. A presidential said. candidate had never lumped to Hillary or giant group of people and said they're, rape, right. they're, race, they're rapists. Yeah. And I think the problem in that sort of description when we were talking was say credible candidate. Um, because I think, that in a way, the greatest trick Donald ever, Trump ever pulled was to convince us he's a credible candidate, that he has a campaign. Because as, as we all know, sitting on the stage, he has, a, a, he has like the most bare infrastructure of an actual campaign that we've ever seen at this level, right? Like in terms of people on the ground, in terms of what kind of staff he has, in terms of how much advertising he does. He doesn't have a traditional campaign structure. And he, it took him for a long time but, to give but, him one. But the fact and what is happened is the, the, media, the media gave him a campaign structure. But, they but, treated but, but, him. Let me just, this is what I mean yeah. about how it's not a, a, I don't think it's a one-way relationship because I, I, between media and voters. Here's a perfect example. The question of racism. Um, and I hear this all the time. The, the mainstream media is afraid to call out Donald Trump. It's in the fact check. Put it in your headline of every story you write about him. New York Times, Washington Post, MSNBC, CNN, it's generally directed at these outlets. Generally, it's coming from the people who consume those outlets, who read those outlets, who consume them. Um, 
where, what do we just talk about in terms of that college, non-college divide among white voters? Donald Trump is doing something that a Republican candidate for president has never done before. He is losing white suburbanites. He is losing the consumers of the Washington oh, Post, media, the New right. York Times, MSNBC, CNN. He is losing those consumers. There was a poll out the other day that asked voters, Broadly, do you consider Donald Trump a racist? 51% said yes. Among the group that I'm talking about, white college-educated suburbanites who read the New York Times, who wa read the wa uh, Washington Post, who watch CNN, that number is much, much higher. The people who consume the kind of news that the, the, the complaints about coverage are directed to are overwhelmingly against Donald Trump right now. The issue is... Are people outside of that world receiving that coverage differently? And is it encouraging them right. to support him? And also, again, all the criticisms that come to MSNBC are, hey, the New York Times did 12 column inches on, uh, on Hillary and only uh, did 24 on Trump. All of that criticism. Look at conservative outlets that are out there that, that aren't even on anybody's radar. I want to get back to this idea that, that treating him as a credible candidate, because it is this, like, the media gave him kind of a box of a campaign that he filled then with all the shit he has to say. And one of the things that happened is to treat him like a credible candidate, things like the wall and his immigration policies and the anti-Muslim ban, well, we talked about those as racist, which they were. The other thing is that we, tr we treated them like real policies, which they're not. Support for the wall has dropped 12 points since he became a candidate. That, well, that's right. right. But we treated it as though it was something you could even do, which I, which I think is, it, we, we debated, the, we debated the, the intelligence of it as a policy, and we didn't sort of make clear, which I think is something that would have an impact maybe on those non-educated white voters, that it's fucking impossible to do. <laughs> like... That he's an, that it's not you, he's promising you unicorns. Let me let let me let Dave get in and yeah. then Jay and then we're going to actually have people line up and we'll have questions from the audience uh, to to add to this conversation for the balance of our time. So if you've got questions, begin to line up. Let me go, Dave, and then Jay. Well, I was going to say, media institutions do have a role, and and the, our kind of A B test in this race was the Wisconsin Republican primary because Wisconsin is a very unique state where the conservative media. Uh, and the conservative foundations, like the Bradley Foundation, the Olin Foundation, uh, were anti-Trump for a long time. If you listen, if you just, if you drove a truck, if you uh, were a plumber and you were listening to conservative drive talk radio, you thought, if you were in Illinois, you heard Donald Trump was an amazing talent like it is. If you, were in, if you were in Milwaukee, you were hearing Donald Trump's a joke. Not even that someone else was so great, but yeah. Donald Trump was a fraud and he was, and Donald Trump, tanked among the Republican voters there. He's still kind of, that's still a state where he's underperforming. There's one poll where he's not, but it's still a state where he's running behind where he should be nationally. <laughs> and that is where a media diet and a, and a series of institutions try to define what conservative is in a more re realist way. And where they have this model of Scott Walker where they say, see, this works. Um, not the fantasy he says. I would, I would just add to that though, the problem is nationally and in the Republican party nationally, the infrastructure has rewarded nihilism about how government works and I think, I don't want to say xenophobia, but uh, sort of a, uh, indulging the, the it if you think that the problem is everybody else. If, if, if you think that I, I can't get a job because of these, these, these policies, giving resources to other people. They right. endorsed a sort of nihilism about, about policy in the other 49 states where Trump did quite well. And that's not something that any one news outlet could, could change. Like that's why there's one state where the, the media was a little bit more responsible in what, is, what it said how you should vote, how government should work, even from the right. And the rest of the media is, this idea sounds crazy, but they always say our ideas sound crazy. He's saying he wants to blow up this part of the government, but we don't we want to blow up every part of the government? And it was just like the idea that you could do that for decades 
and then Jeb Bush could say, oh, okay, thanks, thanks for being so angry about how government's failing you. Please vote for the responsible adult who's going to streamline. No, never, we told him to blow it up. Never how are we supposed happen. to do that? Jay. I, I, I agree with Dave um, when he says about the nihilism and, and the Republican Party's problems. I mean, you see this certainly in Congress, and I think part of the media problem here and part of the the is essentially the disruption, right? There's, there's, we're in the middle of this massive, like once in every 500 years, Gutenberg style, like massive disruption in how we consume news, how we consume information, how we live our lives with, with our smartphones and everything else. And people want these instantaneous gratifications, right? They want these instantaneous results, whether it's voting for Dancing with the Stars on television or other reality TV shows, or whether it's, um, you We know, have a little bit of experience at the moment with Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're striking accord with this audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, and, and so they, but that has come up against the sort of immutable force of the government, right? So our founding fathers built our government to not turn on a dime because the idea of ch rapid change to them was akin to tyranny. So everything in our government is built into a system of checks and balances that makes it incredibly difficult to move and very rapidly. Barack Obama says it's like turning an aircraft carrier. You can't do it at once. It has to happen in incremental degrees. Every president for the last six presidents has tried to cut departments of the government, none successfully. The only one who's actually managed to do anything about that is George W. Bush, who added a branch of the government with the <laughs> Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. Like, changing the bureaucracy, change, like, anything that you want to do in government has to get all three branches of the government on board, and that is very, very difficult, right? So um, there is no rapid change, and yet Republicans for the last three cycles, from 2010, 2012, 2014, have promised this rapid change. They've said, we're gonna repeal Obamacare, we're gonna impeach Obama, we're gonna do all these things. That is not achievable by you know, majorities well, in either think about, think about Donald Trump saying, on day one, I'm gonna fix this problem, right? Yeah. Or on day one, I'm gonna fix that problem. It just doesn't seem yeah, there, it's, possible. There's nothing that's possible, like in this in this case. The only thing they can do is eat their own, and that they have done successfully, right? right. Like they've deposed John Boehner, they potentially will depose Paul Ryan, they've deposed Jeb Bush and all of their leaders. I mean, they, the right. only thing they can do is that's the change they can. And affect. that was quickly a depressing thing about the election was Ted Cruz, who you interviewed here yesterday, did like he opened his speeches often by saying executive orders he would undo or sign on the first day in office, which is a thing a president can do. That's a thing you can actually promise voters. It's concrete. It's how government works, and people didn't care. They were like, yeah, but that guy's talking about building the wall. That's cooler than, I'm going to undo this accord. <laughs> right. All right, let's take as many as we have time for, and then we're gonna, I'm going to ask one last question of everybody before we go, because Weigel put something on Twitter. I'm just warning you. Oh, God. I'm okay. warning you. I'm going to make you all answer something, because we Weigel promised what you would do. Okay, go ahead. Okay, my name's Allison Thompson. I'm a resident of Austin. I'm a professor at Community College. I've got two kids. Kids are nine and six. They don't understand Trump. We, I'm a news junkie. Grew up in New Jersey. I, my six-year-old son with the wall. He's like, duh, airplanes. Like my, si <laughs> my six-year-old son sees through the nonsense. And you know, you call dog whistle. That's you know, the border wall yeah. thing is a dog whistle. And we grew up. You know, we're 250 miles from Mexico, so that's close to them. So is intellect dead? What's happening here? I mean, my kids are smart. You know smarter than this and they're right. young and uh you know we've been watching and steve you mentioned trump was one percent with the racist comment and he didn't fit into the boxes of 10 so why pay him any mind if he was one percent chris um his rise 
is largely a couple things. One is what Steve talked about, and then two other things that happened. One is the, the he, he realized he had something with the wall, which I'm not sure he realized right at the start, but he, he whatever he is, whatever you think he is, what he is very, quite good at is reading audience. I, w I compare him to a stand-up comedian. Like at this point, what you're seeing is like the greatest hits of a stand-up comedian. Like he's not telling, there aren't any clunkers because he's giving you, all politicians do this to some extent, he does it more. He's giving you exactly what he knows will succeed. So the wall was one. Mm -hmm. The other one was, remember when San Torture. Bernardino and Paris happened? Torture. Torture. And, right, San Bernardino and Paris, Jeb Bush says, it's a time for serious politicians. What happens? Donald Trump says, we need to ban Muslims from entering the country. A proposal that was, I mean, we wrote about this, marginally, con might be unconstitutional. And, and also, might, might. To, to, Anna's point, <laughs> to Anna's point about some of the things, like, <laughs> if you want to say um, people from Italy can't enter the country, like, okay, problematic, I'm Italian, but, but like, um, <laughs> but you could enforce that theoretically, right? Because they have an Italian passport, right? You, you, they, there is not a Muslim passport that... Right. <laughs> so that, so, but my point is, both of those times, I remember distinctly people who worked for Rubio, who worked for Jeb, who worked for Christie, who worked for Walker. They would call me up. I'm sure they called everyone on the stage. They would call me. This is the moment. He has finally done it to himself. Yeah. What happened? Oop. Oop. Those are his two big moments. Right. And so I, it touches on, to your point, I have a seven and a four-year-old. Uh, it touches on. Like smarter than Trump? Uh, yeah. I don't know. 50% of them is my gene, so maybe not. Um, uh, my wife is pretty smart, though. Uh, the, what he touches on, though, is I don't agree with Anna's full assessment. I agree with parts of what she says. I don't agree with all of it, though. We, she and I have known each other for a long time. I think we're comfortable disagreeing. Yes. Um, but there is, he has touched off um, something that is much more, her point about this is exactly right, I, in my opinion much less intellectual, which is the way you are dealing with it. Yeah. Like, well, the wall costs $25 billion. Like, it seems unlikely Mexico is gonna pay $25 billion for it. <laughs> they're not, they're not. And more visceral. People yeah. don't, more, people, people anxiety, don't care. Anxiety, chaos, those are not things, anxiety is not something you, re I struggle with anxiety. It's not something it. I reason out of myself. I know it's dumb. Right. I know, when I used to you go on TV, I would feel super it. anxious, yeah. but I couldn't be like, it's fine, you've done it before. It's not how it works. It's emotional, and I think that's what you need to understand. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. It's okay. I, I'm struggling with anxiety now, actually. Sorry, sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Um, I, I, I'm worried that I'm not going to get to Ture, and then he's going to be mad. Oh, yeah. So, okay. And we know what happens when Ture gets mad. We've been here, we've been here this weekend. Okay, go I find the uh, media coverage increasingly more pool-driven, so I'll share pool, one. Pool-driven? Pool, Pool-driven. 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 Pool pool Excuse my Pittsburgh accent. That's okay. <laughs> it could uh, have the, been pool-driven. Pool-driven so pool going a lot of different directions. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas Kristofs uh, shared this morning's New York Times uh, interesting statistics regarding you all, and that is that 6% of Americans uh, have strong confidence in what the press has to say. So 6%. 6%. That's his statistic. So um, are there mornings that you wake up and wonder <laughs> why you still have a job? But my serious question has to do yeah. with, with the truth, and that is this false equivalency that we see 
regarding which uh, right. presidential candidate has the loosest relationship with the right. truth. Steve, and there are days that I think 6% is a pretty good number. Actually. We're all on stage. Yeah. Everyone who thinks the media yeah. is working right. is And the people were related to us <laughs> in the country are up here. <laughs> At least some of them. Steve, actually, Steve, I voted differently. But has, so. has the media played a role in that false equivalency? <laughs> is there just right. that we expect men to lie, but when a right. woman lies, it, well, it's just not right. Let me, let me ask cable TV McGillicuddy over yeah. here. <laughs> um, this is if, if false equivalency <laughs> is the problem. No, I don't. I, I listen. I, I think, and again, I think this gets to where where the criticism, the people who are, what I always say to people who 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 sort of size up the situation like this, I say, you've managed to sift through all this coverage that's out there. You've managed to sift through cable news playing more of Trump's speeches over the last year than Hillary Clinton's. You've managed to sift through all of the false equivalents that's, that you see in every, uh, uh, every story out there, and yet you've sized Donald Trump up to be an absolutely uh, objectionable, unqualified uh, figure, and, and Hillary Clinton to be uh, uh, vastly, vastly preferable to Donald Trump. And a lot of people have consumed all of this news, have consumed all of this coverage, and made that determination in the face of all of the criticisms that are out there. And I don't say this as a way of exonerating the media from any specific criticism, any specific point. We make mistakes all the time. I make mistakes all the time. I draw things on maps that let me, I, constantly. <laughs> so I'm, I'm saying that not to absolve the media of every criticism that might be out there, but big picture. Do I think that Donald Trump is competitive in this presidential race right now because of what, what is put out there about false equivalents? No, I don't think that's what it is. Do I think that Donald Trump, when you take a poll right now and it says, which candidate do you consider more honest and trustworthy? And I think the most recent one was Trump 41, Clinton 34. Yeah, he's ahead of He's ahead the most recent one I saw. Um, I, do I think that's because there's been insufficient fact-checking? Do I think it's because people are not broadly speaking aware, that, do, do, would not broadly speaking define Donald Trump as a charlatan? No. Oh. You know what I think it is? I think a lot of people look at Donald Trump and they say, how could somebody that offensive be dishonest? I think, they, I, think they are making, I think they are making a broad judgment that a guy who's willing to go up there and say... Mexicans coming into this country are raped. To make statements like that, and then you turn around and say, well, on page 26 of his charities report, it's two different yeah, yeah. levels that people right. are operating. See, the say... kind of dishonesty that people are ascribing to Hillary Clinton is the dishonesty that they see in lawyers. It's somebody who is overly legalistic in how they speak, especially when it comes to the emails. It's somebody who they suspect whatever promise they're making comes with fine print because the promise is put out in a, ver in a way that's like it's written by a lawyer. Donald Trump is speaking in a way we haven't had candidates speak before. Some people just look at him and say he's a liar. A lot of people do. Or a lot of people, I think, say, yeah, the guy is kind of a con man, but big picture, this guy is telling it like it is. I think that's what that's all about. Whereas I would say, if he's willing to say those racist things, I don't care what else he has to say. Well, and I'm not saying that's an unreasonable point. And that's 50% of the country. Right. I want to right? say something about the, we talk about false equivalency. I'm, I'm really glad that that's become a thing that people recognize and then talk about in this election. I wonder if maybe the problem is, in addition to false equivalency, is the fact that American media has for so long pretended that um, lack of bias was the thing that they were aiming for. And people could see that it was biased in some ways, one way or another, and therefore decided not to trust the media at all. Like, you're pretending not to be biased. I know you're biased. I'm not going to trust anything you have to say. And, and false equivalency is a form of, of, of pretend lack of bias. So I think that, it, you know, in some ways, it, what has happened, what that has meant is the media, there is no such thing as the media anymore, in part, because there was, there was reactions within the media to this pretend 
you know, fetishization of bias, which then, what then happened was you had the left and the right break out their own media that also in, insisted they weren't really biased. And what they were doing is telling you the truth. The left is what I'm doing is telling you the truth. The right is what I'm doing telling you the truth. So we have like at least three, but probably a dozen different versions of the truth. Good. Sir. Right. Hi, my name is Vic Schreiker. I'm a student here at UT Austin. And uh, in 2008 and 2012, we heard a lot about how Obama won because of this silent majority that you know, maybe his voters on average weren't as vocal, but were greater in number. And this cycle, there's definitely a sort of social stigma against openly supporting Trump to at least some extent. So do you give any credence to this idea that there's a silent majority out there that stands with Trump? Dave, Dave I wonder about that. I wonder if the polls that we see are actually wildly inaccurate because there are a bunch of unlikely voters, the kind of people who we assume exist but never really show up at the polls, who will show up this time for him. We didn't see much of that in the primaries, and I think Steve, Steve could, I want to put him on the spot, but Steve would more, is more likely to know about this than any other person on earth. Uh, <laughs> states where we've tracked new voter registration, Democratic areas have had more voter registration, and not just Democratic, like old blue-collar Democratic, but like Wake County, where the University of North Carolina is in North Carolina, uh, the Philadelphia suburbs, which have been trending blue. There's been more Democratic registration there because Hillary Clinton had this very, it's the kind of thing she's made fun of, this very meticulous, this we're going to have to grind this out, we have to be ready in case of disaster campaign of registering people, where Trump was betting on people just kind of showing up out of passion. So there was some of that in the primaries, but not much. If you look back to what the primaries pr predicted, that was basically right. Uh, I don't see evidence that there were, there were probably people who were registered independent who couldn't vote in some states, but not a lot. And there, at the same time, you're seeing polls in states like Colorado, in Nevada, that pollsters still worry that they're underestimating Latino voters, because they did in the last couple elections. There are people who just, that pollster starts talking English and they hang up. Um, so I'm not, I don't think that's as much a problem. I think the thing, one thing Democrats are worried about, though, is one, Hillary's whole theme is that there should be like a popular front against Trump, that this is so offensive, and indeed 65% of voters, 60% of voters say he's so offensive, that there should be a rallying to her, and yeah. that might be the silent majority. And there's a worry that people might see her as just as bad, so they vote third party. And that is a factor that didn't exist in 2012, uh, that it's a factor that exists for the moment now. I think we might have seen that change in the last couple of days because of, to, just to, tack on clumsily a point I wanted to make the last time, I think the media's, one of the media's biases was that Hillary was covered as the likely next president and Trump was covered as a goofy joke who wasn't going to win. To the extent where a month ago you could still read speculative stories like, what if Trump just decides to quit the race? That seems like a thing he would do after yeah, giving up his business empire. Yeah, remember, remember yeah. when we were literally having a conversation about Trump right. getting out of the race? Yes, and yeah. that was the media. Right. Just, you know, John Oliver, who I think has done a lot of good work kind of treating him like, we just need to point out that he's a joke, people are going to drift away. I think you see less of that, so I, I, I think there might be a uneasy majority that, that uh, not majority, an uneasy vote around the edge that went, goes from thinking this can't happen to this can. Uh, I think that's more likely than the secret Trump voter, because frankly, the most examined voter in this election is the guy, the trucker hat, tattooed white guy who hey. voted for Trump. The least examined is the 16 million. You don't have a trucker hat. That's a totally. Yeah, you don't have a trucker hat on. <laughs> the least examined is, uh, is holding 16 up the million people who vote for Hillary for Clinton this time. Actually, 17 million vote for the primary last time. Like the black woman who loves Hillary Clinton never gets profiled. The Trump voter is profiled in every magazine with like interview and Andy Warhol style photography. You know, Jill Greenberg showing up to shoot the his decre the, the decrepit town he lives in. We think I think we know those voters. We see where they're coming from pretty well yeah. more than we see the the voters who are really offended and might turn at the last minute for Hillary. All right, I'm going to disappoint the people in line because we are in fact out of time. But 
Weigel promised on Twitter as we walked out here that we would tell you who's going to win the election. <laughs> can, I, can I do a Trump and say, I never said that. I never yeah. said that. I, have, I <laughs> never said that. I have a screen grab of your tweet. Who's Russians, gonna win? Russians did that. Who's going to win the election? Don't <laughs> say Gary Johnson. Uh, Hillary Clinton will win. I think it'll be the Obama states uh, minus Iowa, maybe minus Ohio, minus the district in Maine. But uh, I'm, a demo I'm a demography is destiny guy, and I think it's Demo for Democrats are... It's close to how they could how they could blow it with the the, the white vote, but I think they have enough to grind it out. She, and I think wins. that we if if we in the media cover Trump as a legitimate president in the debates, we will have failed. Um, I, I I just think that sorry yeah. that's that's my bias. He's not he doesn't have the policy acumen. We, we we're lo we're going to lower in all likelihood lower the bar. The but best thing going into Hillary, this debate for Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. I'm talking too much. I apologize. I didn't think anything could lower expectations for her, and then she got pneumonia. And now she's, like, fewer voters think she has an advantage in this debate than thought that about right. um, Obama over Romney. As uh, long as she stands up for 90 hours, 90 minutes, pardon me, without falling down, she's fine, right. Jay, who's going to win the election? I think if the election were held now, it would be Hillary Clinton. Um, and I just organizationally don't understand Trump, as Anna said. Um, he doesn't really have a campaign. He, yeah, like, he, she has double the number of offices in the state of Ohio, offices, than he has national staff, that he has staff, period. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me. Like, she has, like, hundreds of, like, thousands of people who work for her. He yeah. has, like, 82. Um, and so I don't, I, don't, I don't get that at all. But I, I, I also think there'll be an October surprise. I think there'll be emails that'll come from Russians or there'll be some terrorist attack. And so we don't know. We don't know. But, like, right. if it were held today, Hillary Clinton. Steve? Yeah, I, I think, look, you say that it's the two least liked candidates in history, and it, what I'm not convinced of yet is that there isn't a, a, a um, sort of critical mass of voters who think they're both unlikable, but that Donald Trump is fundamentally objectionable. And I think that is imposed, I've seen it so far in the polls, it's imposed a ceiling on him. She's, there's nine polls in the month of September that had her 48% or higher. There were zero that had Donald Trump 48% or higher. So right now, I think there's a ceiling there, and I'm not convinced that that, that, that doesn't exist. Anna? Yeah, I mean, barring something very, very, you know, out of our vision, you know, I think it's going to be Hillary. I think she probably could collapse on stage and still be conceived of as a more, you know, capable commander-in-chief than Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think I would vote for the Weekend at Bernie's version of her over Donald Trump personally. <laughs> <laughs> like, she could be carried around by Tim Kaine, like, and I'd be like, them. Um, uh, I do think that if it starts to get closer, you might see some really unexpected endorsements come out for her. Um, I think, you know, we heard a rumor that HW said he was going to vote, you know, the uh, Kat, Kat, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, it was, it was reported, but it's never been no, no, confirmed. Right, but it was, no, then he told the, the board of Points of Light, 40 people in a room. Right, yeah, it's not, but it's not been confirmed. Right, but, but yeah. and he didn't, but he, they didn't bat it down. Yeah. They said it's a private vote, yeah. you know, he's going to make his own decision. I thought, we, I think we might start to see some leading conservative um, Republicans start to to come out and try and well, seal the deal. Well, if it looks close a couple of weeks before. Yeah, I think right? that you're going to see some really right. unexpected endorsements. Chris. Um, okay, I, I'm in the Steve Kornacki group in terms of, like, if you look at everything that I know about politics, she should win, right? right? Demographics, the map, advertising, organization, level of staff, message, to the extent he, ha you know, I mean... All of those things. Yeah. If we did a generic thing and I said, okay, well, one, one candidate has 82 offices in Florida and one has one in Sarasota, who do you think is going to win? <laughs> like, um, okay, so that. 
at the same time, every sing- and I wrote about this and was loudly wrong, every single thing that I knew about politics suggested someone who had the profile of Donald Trump, who was saying the things that Donald Trump said way outside the mainstream of conservative or liberal thought. I mean, you know, I remember I'd get questions like, who's more conservative, Donald Trump or Ted Cruz? I was like, Really? Ted Cruz right. is a 100, I don't even, I'm not convinced Donald Trump is a conservative. Like, no, he's so not. He's, out, he's, not. he's outside of yeah. right. every sort of way in which someone like me has tried to think right. about the election. I say all that to say I never, ever, ever thought he would be the Republican nominee. And I would bet everyone in this room, if you're being honest, there's no way, and everyone on TV who says that they've thought of it, is there's no way in hell yeah. they knew it. Nobody knew so, I think she should win based on everything I know. Based on everything I know, there was no way in hell he would have gotten to the point where we are 40 whatever, 5, 44 days away talking about him in Iowa. Or do you know what I mean? Like doing an assessment yeah. of his chances. So given all that, I'm a little gun shy to be like, well, all these standard operating procedures that someone like me uses to analyze elections all point to her, that means she's going to win. I think she should win. I don't know if we are in a, an extra political time, that this exists outside of the continuum of everything that we've studied. And there isn't a, there isn't a like, you know, things are, the, the past is predictive of the present and the future until it's not Until anymore. it's not. And I don't know yeah. if that's where we are. All right. Uh, gotta end there. Great to be with these five. Give them a big hand. Thank you all. Thanks, we will be back with Evan McMullen momentarily, so hang out. Thank you.